This is Faye Hartman, and you're listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. Whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, we encourage you to take a moment to rate and comment and provide your feedback on our podcast series. We appreciate your input. Today's episode is about the intersection of rivers, justice, and people's lives. It's about placing the perspectives and voices of the most marginalized members of our society at the center of decisions that will impact the future of our planet. It's about the rights of every person and community has to clean water, fair representation, and decision-making power. We're excited to partner with Water Education Colorado, who provided information and helped with interviews in bringing you this episode of We Are Rivers. Environmental justice. What is it? Why are some communities at greater risk than others? What does it mean to be on the front line? What is water justice and what can we do about it? In this episode, we talk with two experts in the field of environmental justice, Alicia Smith and Kelsey McElroy. We spoke with Alicia and Kelsey in April of 2020, just as the pandemic was beginning. We cover a lot of ground with Kelsey and Alicia, including different stories, experiences, issues, and observations surrounding environmental justice. We'll hear more about what environmental justice is and its different facets, the injustices surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, and the accessibility of water for public health. We'll also hear about challenges surrounding water quality, including nutrient pollution, lead, and the impacts of PFAS. We'll also touch on the many ways communities can and are engaging in solutions-oriented participatory democracy. We hope this sliver of stories, experiences, issues, and observations give you a better understanding of the complicated issues surrounding environmental injustice and some of the work going on to address it. Join us today on We Are Rivers as we discuss the intersection of environmental justice and water equity. I can definitely explain what environmental justice means to me. I first start with the concept of justice and justice being what is owed and due to me and what I owe and is due to others. And that is even to the rights of nature um, and what rights and duties we have to our earth and what rights and duties our earth has to us. That was Alicia Smith. She's the Associate Director of Policy and Community Engagement Director for Freshwater Future. She's also a community liaison for the Junction Coalition in Toledo, Ohio. So for me, environmental justice is the fair distribution of services, benefits, the mitigation and adaptation of the world's best benefit. What is best for our air, land, and water? Um, and how those services, benefits are fairly distribute, distributed amongst all. So that's what environmental justice is to me. Environmental justice has many different components, but it comes down to a few main ideas. Let's hear from Kelsey McElroy. My favorite definition of environmental justice is just the idea that 
all people, regardless of who they are, deserve a healthy and safe environment in which they can live, work, and play so that that nobody is punished inadvertently by accident of birth. That was Kelsey McElroy. She's an instructor and PhD candidate in the sociology department at Colorado State University. Previously, she was a research assistant at the Colorado Water Center. And currently, she's a research assistant at the Institute for Research in the Social Sciences at Colorado State. As both Alicia and Kelsey said, environmental justice is the idea that all people deserve a safe and healthy environment, regardless of who they are. We spoke with Kelsey and Alicia last spring over the phone as the magnitude of the COVID-19 pandemic was just beginning to take hold. Environmental justice acknowledges that communities of color and low-income communities are disproportionately impacted by environmental issues such as climate change, water contamination, and poor air quality. These communities are more likely to be targeted to host polluting industries, and they often lack investment in critical infrastructure, water or otherwise. Environmental justice is part of a much broader and more complicated conversation surrounding equity and restitution. Many challenges with environmental justice are often rooted in narratives of immigration, development, and industry, and political power dynamics, further influenced by evolving legal and regulatory frameworks. Americans watched many of these factors converge when in 2015, one of the most high-profile environmental justice cases unfolded in Flint, Michigan, where corroded pipes poisoned the population after the city switched its drinking water source and failed to manage for lead in the pipes. Flint's population was predominantly black, and more than 40% of residents were below the poverty threshold. Without warning constituents, the city began supplying residents with water that wasn't treated under federal anti-corrosion rules for lead. More than five years after the crisis in Flint began, the city and its residents are still recovering. Today, we face a global challenge with the COVID-19 pandemic. While everyone, regardless of who they are or where they live, can be impacted by this crisis, statistics show that low-income communities and Black, Latino, and Indigenous peoples are at a greater risk. For months, public health officials have and continue to encourage everyone to wash their hands to contain the spread of COVID-19. However, there are many homes and communities in the U.S. without access to running water because of the challenges like water shutoffs, contamination, lack of indoor plumbing or wastewater treatment, among other things. When homes lack access to water, families and entire communities are at a higher health risk. It's essential that during this crisis and beyond, clean water is available for everyone. Here's an example that we're living through right now. The COVID-19 doesn't care about your race, color, creed, or your financial stability. It is taking loved ones from all of us. And without us sitting down and saying, okay, we have to shelter in place, that's one. But two, we have to make sure that families have access to clean water. If we don't have those things, we again begin to poison ourselves and our earth. COVID-19 has impacted low-income communities and Black, Latino, and Indigenous peoples at a greater scale. This is another example of a much broader issue, one that long predated the pandemic. Social justice and environmental justice are linked.
As Alicia said, justice is and must be right for everyone and everything, from humans to plants and wildlife, from the rivers we all rely on to the air that we breathe. And as we heard from Alicia earlier, environmental justice is the fair distribution of services and the benefits that those services provide to everyone. Environmental justice is one type of justice that society depends on. For one, the work that I do in the Junction Coalition is has four pillars of justice. Those pillars being environmental justice, social justice, economic justice, and peace justice. All of those working together is an example of a well-ordered society, a quality way of living. When you look at social environmental justice in itself, Standing alone is the air, the land, and water. The social justice adds the people and the mobility on that land with that air for that water. When you look at the economics, it's how we benefit and build revenue and build opportunities, opportunities for housing, employment, schooling, health, transportation, food security, and our living environment, our walkability. The concept of justice, which is the idea that society should behave in a way that is fair, equal, and balanced for everyone, has many facets, or as Alicia says, pillars. An equitable society occurs when all of these pillars are balanced and working together. However, the pillars are not always balanced. Here is Alicia again on how justice can be restored and why it is so important to consider all pillars of justice in community solutions. This space that we're in now is creating all kinds of trauma and mental harm. But how we engage those areas of justice and we go back to justice as what we are due and what we owe each other, it means that we continue to create a cycle of healing and restorative practices. So justice as restorative justice is that we go back and get the harm and right the harm to ensure that we're no longer living in a space where we don't care about those that don't don't have, that we are just looking at the air, the land, and the water, but we're looking at the people. We're creating a holistic approach to healing through justice in all four frames. So that is, you know, a key space of what the facets of justice are. Environmental, peace, economic and social justice are undeniably intertwined and connected to people's value systems. So environmental justice is a particular kind of justice and and asking a particular kind of way of asking questions about equity and distribution of harms and benefits, but it is intricately linked with all these other questions of injustice and long-term historical patterns and also cultural values. And so sometimes these things can seem really, really interconnected. And that's because they are, you know, in my research, I found that I can't talk about water in Colorado without talking about the things that matter most to people, their values and their beliefs. And that makes these conversations feel so much more personal to people. And so that's why I think environmental justice issues are so hard to address and unpack And it's because it taps into some of people's most deeply rooted values. As Kelsey said, environmental justice is a type of justice. 
unpacking the relationship between environmental justice and other types of justice is a really important topic, but it's not the focus of our podcast today. But as you can likely see by now, it is almost impossible to talk about environmental justice and not consider the other components of justice. As just one of those critical pillars, environmental justice alone is complicated, and there are many different facets. Let's hear again from Kelsey on the different aspects of environmental justice and how they work together. And these aspects are just kind of ways of looking at environmental justice issues or problems and different approaches for asking questions. Um, So the first one is distributive justice. And distributive justice is basically asking how harm is distributed. Is this fair? Is are people um, having equitable exposure to different environmental risks and benefits? Um, the second one is procedural justice. And so that asks questions about, are there opportunities for authentic participation from all the stakeholders, from all the people that are involved in, in decision-making? Um, are the procedures for how this harm is being addressed, are those fair as well? Um, and another one is recognition justice, which basically asks questions about who is bearing the burden of this harm. Is it proportional? Is it disproportionate? Does one, are many people actually harmed, but some are harmed more than others? How does this break down? Does it break down based on urban, rural, race, class, gender, um, and you know, ability, disability? And it also recognizes that the environment has the environment, something we often forget that we are very dependent on, um, the environment is could also be potentially being harmed. And so what does that mean? Um, are there risks that we're overlooking in the long term? Um, and then finally, the aspect of restorative justice. So how are ecological systems, how are humans and the communities being restored or improved Just as all forms of justice, including environmental justice, are required for us to function as an equitable society, the same can be said about the four aspects of environmental justice. Considering these four aspects allow us to see the entire picture of environmental justice. They allow us to ask questions and imagine how we can address the challenges. Environmental harm doesn't follow boundaries. It can affect everyone and every community. That said, it tends to affect certain communities disproportionately. I kind of think that issues related to environmental justice is kind of like COVID-19. Anybody can experience this. You know, it's issues related to environmental harm caused by human actions can impact anyone, whether it's it's non-discriminatory. However, that being said, Predominantly, we see that communities of color, poor communities are are more heavily impacted and bear a disproportionate burden of um, impacts to the environment that then cause hazards to their lives. Across the country, communities are affected by environmental injustices. 
And as Kelsey said, low-income communities and people of color are disproportionately affected by higher rates of air pollution, a lack of infrastructure to bring clean water, and limited access to green spaces within walking distance. Some of the most significant environmental justice issues facing communities, those that are urban, rural, and suburban, are amplified by the rollback of many of our bedrock environmental laws. These environmental laws and protections that communities have fought for for decades have been rolled back, and the implications will disproportionately harm vulnerable communities. The continuous rollback of precious, important, essential um, laws and policies and um, opportunities to protect water and protect the environment. Um, We've had a rollback of the Clean Water Act, um, and that is going to do tremendous harm. The rollback of many of our essential environmental laws undermines communities' ability to hold polluters accountable for the challenges they place on our natural resources and the surrounding communities. This is likely to amplify many of the injustices that communities are already facing. Every instance of environmental harm is unique. However, there are similarities among them, including power imbalances, a lack of representation, limited information sharing, restricted funding, and compounding impacts from other injustices. Power imbalances show up in many ways and often lead to challenging questions and answers. Let's hear from Kelsey again. I I think that one of the most important things that environmental justice can highlight or using an environmental justice perspective on addressing issues can highlight is issues of power and access to power. Um, you know, the, and these can be really uncomfortable questions sometimes because it asks us to acknowledge, you know, how, who, who has the ability to make decisions for our community? Um, who has the ability to, shape policy that impacts our community. Um, You know, for instance, in the security wide field and fountain um, water contamination issues, basically there were um, chemicals that the Air Force had been using as flame retardants, fire retardants um, that leached into the groundwater supply for fountain and security wide field. And so that is a huge problem. The community didn't know this was happening, wasn't aware that these chemicals were leaching into their groundwater supply, but it has obviously a huge impact on their health and well-being. The communities of Fountain, Security, and Widefield, just south of Colorado Springs, Colorado, experienced this challenge of power imbalance firsthand in 2016 when water providers and residents learned that PFAS, which is short for per- and polyfluorocalized substances, were detected in their groundwater levels at above EPA's new 2016 health advisory levels. PFAS are a group of man-made chemicals that include PFOA, PFOS, Gen X, and many other chemicals. The chemicals came from firefighting foam, which was used for decades to extinguish training fuels at the nearby Peterson Air Force Base. PFAS have been linked to major health issues from cancer to kidney failure and are known as forever chemicals because they bioaccumulate and take a long time to break down. 
the U.S. Air Force admitted its fault and is building water treatment plants to make the contaminated water usable. Additionally, some of the big chemical manufacturing companies who invented and spread the use of PFAS, like DuPont and 3M, have faced lawsuits from impacted communities around the country. It's hard to know how to fairly distribute blame and charges, and how to ensure communities have the political and legal power to identify and hold the responsible entities accountable. You know, it raises these uncomfortable questions about like what obligation did the Air Force have to those communities once they knew this was happening? Do they then need to stop using flame retardants? I mean, arguably, they're using them for very good reasons, fire and saving people's lives. Um, but it causes these externalities that impact these communities. And so then, you know, we look at issues like, well, why are these chemicals allowed to be used when they can reach into our groundwater? And, you know, do the companies that manufacture these chemicals, do they have a responsibility here? Um, and so then we start looking at, you know, okay, well, who can policy around this stuff? And sometimes that can lead to some really uncomfortable answers where a community says, hey, we actually don't feel like we have any power here in shaping federal policy around these issues. Um, so does that need to change? How can we make meaningful change around that? And what are we going to do about it in the future? Um, and so it, it can cause us to bring up a lot of questions about, you know, free markets and capitalism and at what point do we need to have regulations around these things in order to safeguard our most vulnerable citizens? While the process is slow, actions are being taken to address the challenges around PFAS and ensure this doesn't happen again. In September of 2020, Colorado implemented a new regulation requiring Colorado's manufacturers, wastewater treatment plants, and others to monitor PFAS. It's one of several new laws and regulations the state has enacted related to PFAS. Colorado's new PFAS regulatory push is in addition to three new state laws that are designed to protect the public. These laws will, among other things, ban toxic firefighting foam, dramatically increase fines for polluters, and provide funding for PFAS cleanup. In taking these actions, Colorado becomes one of the 12 states that have opted to move out ahead of the U.S. EPA in establishing their own regulations, monitoring sources of the chemicals, and setting limits on how much of the various contaminants can exist in water supplies before they pose a threat to public health. Today, no federal PFAS standard exists. However, the EPA has said they will consider a standard for two PFAS chemicals, PFOA and PFOS. Implementing solutions to the questions that Kelsey posed in her discussion about PFAS is undoubtedly challenging. While we don't know what the resolution will look like, it's critical that impacted community members are at the table. They're there to share, access information, and provide their perspective on how to address this situation in a way that meets their needs. These conversations will help to create plans for solutions that include both impacted communities and decision makers. Let's hear from Alicia. But I would really like to focus on participatory democracy as it relates to uh urban communities, making sure people have information about what's going on in regards to their environmental health. Um, 
when you look at some of the public health concerns, people don't have enough information about uh, heat zones, asthma, and how it relates to their children, lead contamination in water, and how that relates to the criminal justice um, system, um, and how there's interconnectivity woven into everything that has to do with the environment, and how justice, what, again, is due to us and what we owe to someone else. So when you look at the urban community, the urban community is in need of more trees to reduce the carbon footprint. We're in need of more green infrastructure as we begin to talk about gray infrastructure. There needs to be a complete mix so that you have a holistic approach. And then the participatory democracy is where people participate in the process of environmental wealth environmental wellness so that we can all be healthy and well. As Alicia said, knowledge is power. Having information about the relationship between the environment and other social issues gives communities a pathway to both understand the challenge and be empowered and informed to begin developing solutions that make sense for them. In 2014, communities in the greater Toledo, Ohio area experienced severe water quality challenges that stemmed from pollution occurring in multiple places throughout the watershed, including urban and rural areas. Up to that point, rural and urban stakeholders weren't connecting effectively on best management practices. When we talk about the rural piece, it is so necessary for us to understand best practices as both the rural and urban connect. And until we can see where the two come together is where we're going to be doing the harm. If you have pollutants by way of nutrient pollution, and that's something that Toledo saw back in 2014 with the water crisis where over 500,000 people were without their water because of algal blooms or microcystins. Um, cyanobacteria, that's where the water turns green, there's this high level of bacteria, and you cannot consume that. And many of the elders, the children, no matter what community they were in, but if they were on the Toledo waterways, they could not drink that water. And it came by way of the nutrient pollution, the phosphorus, as well as the manure in the um, areas where there was factory farms. As Alicia said, polluted runoff caused significant issues with the city of Toledo's drinking water in 2014 and 2016. This affected all communities, but particularly low-income communities, people of color, and the city's older population. Not being able to drink or touch the water that flowed out of the tap meant that residents of Toledo, some that needed to fill baby bottles and clean medical tubes, likely had to drive to find clean water. As the crisis set in, bottled water became harder to find, and not everyone has a car or the ability to travel easily. For many community members, finding clean sources of water was a challenge. The Junction Coalition and other community groups worked tirelessly to distribute emergency bottled water and communicate about the water crisis. Whether it's lead, PFAS, or other pollutants, contamination of the local water supply has devastating impacts. At an even larger scale, nutrient pollution is contaminating drinking water supplies in communities across the country. 
In agricultural regions, excess fertilizer and manure from farmland often runs off into rivers and streams, contaminating water. These pollutants build on each other and can eventually create toxic algal blooms. These blooms can shut down fisheries, beaches, and even municipal water supplies, as was seen in Toledo. In urban communities, nutrient pollution is amplified when rain runs off the pavement, rooftops, and other hard surfaces, carrying heavy metals, bacteria, and other pollutants into storm drains, and ultimately into local rivers, lakes, and streams. In the case of Toledo, stormwater runoff added to the harmful algal bloom crisis that was already facing the city. Addressing these issues needs to be discussed at the community level, but also at a more regional level. And so that's where we need to sit in the rooms together and begin to have conversations about how we reduce nutrient pollution, how we look at the impact of corporate greed, and how many times polluting the water, particularly our lakes and rivers, cause harm to everybody. So it is an urban and rural issue that we have to look at how do we make sure that we get our young people involved in cleaning up the basins, the catch basins in our urban community, and how we teach and train our children to farm and have nutrient buffers and things like that to ensure a healthier water system. Like Alicia said, polluted runoff affects all communities, upstream and down. To address this challenge as a whole, watershed-wide conversations that invite and engage representation from constituents across the watershed need to occur. These types of conversations can lead to restoring the power balance and ensuring that everyone has access to the same information and the lines of communication are open. While watershed-wide conversations are essential to address the significant issue of nutrient pollution and its impacts to river health and drinking water supplies, having more local discussions are important too. Since the 2014 water crisis, the city of Toledo has worked to mitigate the issues of blue-green algae across the city by developing and implementing green infrastructure plans and solutions. The Junction Avenue neighborhood, led by the Junction Coalition and the Toledo Metropolitan Community Area of Governments, developed a community greening plan that included green infrastructure to address stormwater issues, as well as neighborhood greening. These types of community plans are a critical step to address the problem locally and are a piece of the puzzle in achieving a sustainable solution to the watershed problem. An inclusive conversation that bridges the urban-rural gap is critical to address the full scope of the challenge with long-lasting solutions that advance justice for all. Across the board, policy and planning that include every stakeholder is a critical next step. And while the shift towards inclusivity is happening, the transition is slow. As both Kelsey and Alicia discussed earlier, it's essential that everyone has a seat at the table when addressing environmental injustices. This is an important component of procedural justice and participatory democracy. The voices and opinions of the community experiencing injustices are at the heart of the solution. In regards to what are some of the ways into which communities can come together and tackle environmental justice in their communities is do a critical mass. Working together, um, understanding that common good is everybody. So it's important for us to understand that the 
community's critical mass of stakeholders, those that have the philanthropists, the evaluators, academia, and the community coming together is part of a holistic participatory action that will heal our land and heal the process of all the things that's going on in our world. Many communities are building this process through the development of community coalitions. Here's Alicia. Coalitions are so very important. It's important to understand what a coalition is. The coalition doesn't mean that you just function in a silo. It means that you do network building, information sharing, that you give access to information, you give access, access to intellectual property, and that you help people to navigate through that for their whole whole their wellness and their well-being. And so the importance of community coalition is that the people on the ground, the grassroots organizations, such as um, the Milwaukee Water Commons in Wisconsin, working so tirelessly to make sure that there's access to water for everyone. And when we're talking about access, we're not just talking about the importance of clean, affordable drinking water. We're also talking about recreation for socialization and walkability. How important is that? Across the country, community coalitions are working on the ground in their neighborhoods to understand and address all challenges associated with environmental justice impacts. Water justice, social justice, it's also about being able to have a relationship with water, a relationship with the environment. Um, and that is because of the grassroots work. The grassroots work and coalitions help you understand that environmental justice isn't in a silo, that it's also about making sure families eat um, and that you can teach young people how to test soil. And so many times when you're working from a space of the ivory tower or the university, many times we don't have an opportunity to come out and work on the ground with families who we love to describe as disenfranchised or disadvantaged. But if you ever sit down and have conversations with any of our children or any of our elders within those communities, you'll probably learn more than you ever will just by sitting in the classroom alone. There's value in both, and that's what many of the coalitions do. They bring the value together. For we, the people of Detroit, they have a water unity table. Freshwater Future has um, Bitten Harbor Water Council, and so the Water Council works to make sure that during the heightened lead exposure in their water because of their pipe that they can help the public health department distribute filters. What about the folks that are not getting filters? And who's willing to do the sweat equity without pay to get that over to families that are in need? So that's what community coalitions do. They work to fulfill the gaps, to fill the gap, and to fulfill the needs. Not only do community coalitions help to fill the gaps and implement solutions, but they can also help to heal the impacts of environmental injustice. Here's Kelsey. How issues are addressed um, matters just as much as the actual harm. So if the community that is impacted isn't being involved or isn't, doesn't have authentic participation in the process of fixing these issues, then a whole nother level of injustice is happening. 
um, you know, the people that are directly impacted need to be at the forefront of creating these solutions. And that doesn't mean that they bear the sole responsibility for it, but just that when looking at issues of environmental justice, questions about who is involved and how authentic their participation is matters. In addition to having all stakeholders at the table and having meaningful, authentic conversations, these tables also need to acknowledge the historical injustices that communities have faced. Decisions that were made long ago are carried forward and reproduced through time. And so that also contributes very much to how people then perceive and interpret environmental justice issues. Um, So for communities that have experienced historic injustices, um, such as, you know, the the Native American communities in Colorado or the Hispanic and Latinx communities in Southern Colorado. Um, You know, there's this long history of of injustice outside of water in those communities. And those things play a huge role today in shaping how people think about any sort of environmental justice issue today and in many ways talking about any sort of water issue today or discussions around water management you can't talk about those without talking about these connections to other things that have happened in the past that seemingly might not be related but very much are on the forefront of people's minds as kelsey mentioned it can be hard to address current issues without acknowledging past injustices In addition to acknowledging past injustices, in order to address these challenges, decision makers need to understand the perspective and needs of every stakeholder and community group that has a stake in the process. Here's Alicia. I'm a lover of Anthony Hamilton's music, and he has a uh, uh, single that talks about coming from where I'm from. If we took the time and sat down and understood where other people are coming from, we could explain to those individuals how their reactions to our injustices and harms can impact the entire world from a collective, cooperative engagement or participatory action, which means that everybody begins to put sweat and equity into the game. Um, So I think that that's the the one area for me of how um, EJ is connected to power imbalance, equity, and diversity. We have to make sure that it's not just the elders that's engaged, but our children are engaged, that every racial demographic is engaged, that we look at the low socioeconomic community and see what we have not done and what we haven't done well and begin to give back to those individuals. Bringing everyone to the table will help create solutions that are beneficial for all communities and will create a more just society. Not only does listening and considering all stakeholders need to happen at the local level, on the ground and in communities, but also at the national and global level. No longer return to the capitalistic concept of we need to strengthen the economy. What we need to do is strengthen the people and people will strengthen the economy. Um, we have to look at how we build relationships um, and keep those relationships, how we care for each other. That's the process of healing. The process of healing is what is done to you is done to me. And what is done to me is done to each of you. 
And until our world returns back to that concept, we'll continue to do harm. This is not just a United States issue. This is a global, from local to global, this is a global concern of environmental justice as a social justice impact. We hope you learned a bit today about social and environmental justice and that you're enticed to consider the ways that past injustices have impacted people differently in your community, region, and the world. We also hope that you found inspiration in the collaborative, solution-oriented ways that many communities are working to heal injustices and ensure that we have what we need for good health and positive, productive lives. Thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to rate and comment. Thank you to Water Education Colorado and the interviewees that participated in this episode, Kelsey McElroy and Alicia Smith. This episode was written and produced by Caitlin Coleman and Faye Hartman with support from Water Education Colorado and American Rivers. 